Um, I just wanted to welcome everyone again to the Westminster class. I wanted to say thanks. We have received some donations for the class, for the lecturers. Uh, I reminded everybody last week that this is kind of a free will thing. We don't ask for it on Sunday, but if you'd like to leave it, you can leave it with me. Um, if not, you can mail them into the church, Attention Logos. And uh, What's that? No, I don't. Would you like me to do that? I will. Sure, okay. Very good. Okay, we'll do that. Reminder, we have two more weeks to this class, and then the first two weeks in June, uh, Deb Runlet will be coming uh, to end the, the Westminster class for this, this uh, year. So again, we welcome you and thank you uh, immensely for your uh, donations. Would you like to pray? Would you like to pray? We'll open with prayer. You're welcome. <laughs> Good morning. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we lift you up and we praise you. You are a wonderful God, the God that has given us the sunshine, the God that has given us the rain. We worship you because you are so worthy of our worship. And Lord, at this time we ask an anointing on John and on Zev as they continue to just open our minds up and help us to understand you better so that we can draw closer to you and understand our relationship with you in such a mighty way. Lord, thank you for this time. In Christ's name, amen. Is that on? Yes. Okay, sorry about that. So you read it anyway, so I don't have to read it again. Okay, where's the yada? No, the Lord. That's the, the, okay, beautiful. Now you got that. So now we need to understand what yada means. Now, find Genesis 4.1, please. And here is where Yadah begins to take an interesting twist. Uh, back, Don Drum did this uh, sculpture, by the way. If you wonder what it is, it's Adam and Eve with a wedding ring. Uh, what does Genesis 4.1 say? The man knew his wife. You're reading King James. Aha! Providential, fortuitous. Who's reading one of those... Uh, modern versions that's afraid of really getting into the implication of this text. What does it say? Modern translation. The man what? Lay, lay with his wife. Well, that's, I guess that's provocative enough. Uh, the man lay with his wife. Now go to 417. And Cain knew his wife. Yada. Go to 425. And Adam, and Adam, does it say again? Yes, so we know that at least they had sex twice. Boy, I thought you would laugh at that, but I guess not. <clears throat> okay, um, okay, so what does this mean? Why does it use the term yada? It becomes a, a Hebrew euphemism. To know your wife, to know your husband, it's the most intimate form of personal knowing that you can have in a human relationship. And so it becomes not just merely cognitive information or data, but what? When you know someone in this way, it's an all-encompassing intimacy that God then exploits and uses throughout the rest of the Older Testament for sure to make a profound spiritual point. And that's what I want you to understand because you will see eventually how the writers of the New Testament and especially the writer of Hebrews, Apollos, we think, used it. Okay, so this notion of Yahweh in Israel, God borrows from Adam and Eve and begins to develop this metaphor throughout the entire Older Testament. And I'm going to argue that it's the central metaphor that God uses every time God wants to speak to the heart of God's people and really make a profound point. God uses this metaphor of what? Uh, 
here's a text from Jeremiah, which is appropriate because, you know, we're quoting Jeremiah in the book of Hebrews to make the foundation for this new covenant construct. I remember the devotion of your youth, how, what's God say? As a bride, you loved me. When would that have been, by the way? When would Israel have been God's little uh, young bride and would have loved God with devotion and fervor? When they came out of Egypt, yes. When they first got married, which I will explain in a minute. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me, but now she defiled the land and committed adultery with wood and stone. How do you commit adultery with wood and stone? By metaphorically shifting your allegiance that belongs only to God to any other created thing. That's what the Bible calls idolatry. But God, to make the emotional punch come into our heart, frames it up as, this isn't just merely idolatry. This is what? You cheated on me. You cheated on me with other gods. So then later, he says, return faithful people, for I, God, am your husband. You can't get any more blatant than this. So this is shot through the entire prophetic literature. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And if you want to go home today, there's no Cavs game today, right? Wednesday. Wednesday, okay, thank you. So you got plenty of time today. Read Hosea. Read the book of Hosea. If you've never read it, this will come as a, a shocking story for you, how God takes the story of being married to Israel and weaves it into the life of Hosea the prophet. So, this is the central metaphor that God has when God wants to speak to God's people. Now, here's yada, 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 and I want you to see this because I don't want anybody to be upset when uh, you see a little bit of a difference and think I'm a cult leader. On the left-hand side, Jeremiah 31, 32 in Hebrew, it says, literally, although I was a husband unto them. That's what it says in the original Hebrew text. Now, remember, Zeb's always talking about the Septuagint. Okay, here it is. This is the first translation of the Bible that was ever done. Uh, Finished approximately 250 BCE. Um, 250 years before Christ. This is the Greek translation of the Older Testament done by Jewish scribes. When they got to this text, they had their reasons. Scholars argue about it. But this is how they render it. And I disregarded them says the Lord. It doesn't say, even though I was a husband unto them. Why the change? My view, this is a cultural equivalency. And translators frequently do this. If they want to uh, accommodate to the culture or make a point, sometimes they will get the gist of the concept but use different language so that it makes more sense. Uh, Except for Susan, who's reading King James, most of the Bibles that you have Oh, and I'm sorry. (laughs) That one too. Except for those couple of versions that are like punctilious about translating everything right to the bone exactly as it says, most modern translations use this construct of cultural equivalency because they're afraid that people won't really get it. So actually there's like a little bit of an interpretation there. Now why do I think they did that? Uh, Disregarded. If you go to the original Hebrew and look at it, uh, it actually, the, the Hebrew term is Baal, which can mean husband, it can be lord, it can be master, it can mean to have dominion over somebody. And ladies, I'm sorry to tell you this, but that's, uh, all that stuff was bound up in the notion of what? Husband, master, lord. Okay, and so a master and a lord functioning in the role of husband, and you know I don't agree with this, but master, lord, functioning in the role of husband, what's the role of the husband then? To have regard for to take care of, to provide for the woman, the wife. Now, the the thesis of Hebrews 8 is what? That God was married to Israel, was uh, his wife, and then what did Israel do? They abandoned God, and so eventually God, in this translation, they write it. So even though uh, I did all these things for you, what did you do, in effect, culturally? You disregarded me. That's what Israel did. That's what God is saying. You disregarded me, and so therefore what? I will disregard you. In other words, I'm not going to care about this anymore in the same way that I cared about it before. Now, of course, God being God, thank God, uh, this is a temporary statement to get their attention. So 
If you read in your English Bible, if you read Hebrews, you will see that the author of Hebrews doesn't quote the original Hebrew. He quotes the Septuagint. Because why? What did Zeb teach you? Heartbreaking, isn't it? <laughs> that the, uh, uh, the, the Hellenism that swept the uh, Jewish world uh, starting uh, after Alexander uh, caused them to culturally adapt, uh, put a Greek translation out there, begin to speak Greek, and read Greek so that they could be a part of that Hellenistic culture. Now, it's okay. It's all good. We, we all do this. But if you read in the book of Hebrews, and it doesn't say, though I was a husband to them, uh, in, in your translation, you will now understand why. Now, does anyone have a little question on that? Does it make sense what I just said? I'm sorry to get so technical, but it was perfect. Okay. We'll so, see if they remember next yeah. week. <laughs> okay, so now, let's get to the meaning of all this now that the facts are established. This concept of yada, 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 yada. So God creates the first one couple, one flesh couple. He creates them out of one flesh. He creates them to return to be one flesh. That's the definition of biblical marriage. You become one flesh with someone. And why does God do this? God could have made us uh, sort of like um, hermaphrodites with no gender, and we could have spawned offspring by mental telepathy, right? But that wouldn't have been any fun, so God did it this way. God chose to do it this way. But everything that God does has some impacted, uh, hidden metaphor to it. And Zev and I have been trying to share that with you, too. In the Bible, there are layers. And there's the surface layer, yeah, physical marriage. But then God begins to open the book up and say, yeah, well, physical marriage is great and it's cool, but it also has a profound spiritual layer on top of it. And what is that? It is an example of the ultimate spiritual union of intimate knowledge and love that God wants to have with us. So God takes the, the one thing that where humans are, I'm in church, so please forgive me, when we are the most naked, when we are the most vulnerable, when we are at a place where we're surrendering ourselves to another person and having the most intimate form of knowing that you can have, takes that as the human being. And of course, that's the one commandment the human beings have never had too much trouble obeying, right? Be fruitful and multiply. So the human race is real uh, into this, and so God takes that one thing that humans care about so much and takes it and says, look, I, I want to tell you something about what I want to have with you. What you have there, I want to have with you in the spiritual realm. So they're to build a bridge from that experience and understand. You mean God wants to love me and God wants me to love God in that form of level of intimacy? God wants to yada me? God wants me to yada God? God wants me to have? Yes. This is what the prophets pound over and over and over again into us. So, now let's get to the actual marriage covenant. Do you recall? God says, I was a husband to you. All the way through the prophets, Jeremiah says, I was a husband to you. I married you. You were my bride. So, when did this happen? We already have a, uh, when did God and Israel get married? Ah, uh, no. That was the engagement period. But thanks, that's a good one. What, 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 what? At the... At the covenant of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, there was a wedding. That's how God looked at this. Who got married? God and Israel. Who was the minister? Moses. A contract, a marriage contract was effectuated on that day. And they became God's people and God became their God. And God said, we are now one and we're going to know each other. Uh, why did it happen? Why did God do this? Love, yes, God wanted to have a people that would be so devoted to God as a representative of what God wanted to do, not just for the Jewish people, but for all the peoples of the world. So Israel was to stand in the center of the nations and have this yada, love, intimacy, relationship with God, and the rest of the nations were to look on and say what? Those are God's people. Look how different they are. Look at how they live. And uh, then the Jew, yes, Terry. They were blessed, yes, they were, 
it's, it's not about the Jews being more important than other people by no means. In fact, God even says in the book of Deuteronomy to them, if you ever fall, this is a paraphrase, I'm doing a Septuagint. If you ever fall into the delusional belief that because you're chosen, you're better than other people, think again, I chose you because, anybody know the rest of it? Yes, that's the way I decided it, but he actually puts in there, even though you were the least of all peoples. Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians. He says, look among you, brethren, not many wise, not many mighty, not many well-born among you. So don't kid yourself because you're a Christian that you're better than other people. In fact, there's a good chance that you got chosen because you really needed it. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, you know, it's a comparative thing. Egypt was the mega power of the day. I mean, Egypt was the U.S. of the day. The Jews were the Palestinians of the day. And here God pulls this stunt of picking up people that the rest of the surrounding nations thought were a bunch of uh, ragtag uh, uh, shepherds and whatnot, and has this covenant with them. Yes, in the center of the world, they were to display this intimacy and thus attract the Gentiles to the God of Israel. That makes sense? Beautiful, isn't it? It's a great strategy. But what happened in the end to this relationship? God gets married to Israel. Israel gets married to God. They go on and on and on. This started in 1445 BCE. It goes on by the time we get to Jeremiah. About 586 BCE is when he writes this famous passage uh, in, in Hebrews, or I'm sorry, in Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8 cites it. Uh, we have a period of almost 900 years that goes on. What happens in that 900-year period? They became, eventually, not all, but the general track, the tendency was for Israel to become spiritually adulterous, meaning they had so many other gods that they paid attention to that the love and devotion that Israel was to have for the one and true only God was lost. So, is this just a Jewish problem? No. Starting with the first humans, what happened? Adam and Eve broke the Yadah contract. Israel broke the Yadah covenant. So, after about 900 years of this marriage, Jeremiah comes up with the good news. God being God, any normal human, if they were married to a serial adulterer, would do what? I'm done with this. And you would think any normal God that was married to an adulterous people would eventually say, I'm done with you. I'll go out and find some other people. But God, the God of the Bible, God being the God who God is, God does not give up on God's people. So what does God do? I will make a new covenant. I'll make a new one with you. I'll give you... A, yet another chance to come back into this yada relationship. And so, as we go back to Hebrews 8, which Zev is now going to explain, you see that this new contract, this new covenant, is designed to not just repair, but to actually advance the ability for not only Jews, but also for Gentiles to come into a yada relationship with the God of Israel. So now, let's go back just before Zev. Oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry. Here, I thought I was all slick and stuff, but sorry, it's a little smaller. I'll fix it in a second. So when he says in verse 34, they'll not, when you enter into this new covenant, you won't have to go around and say to people, know the Lord. He's punning. God is punning. What does God mean? Yada, you're going to know me in the way that I always wanted to be known, and the way you really want to know me, and that's going to be the characteristic of this new covenant, deep spiritual intimacy with God, like a marriage. That's what God wants with us. So, Zev, while you come now, I'm going to repair this little mistake and um, start you off in the right place. Okay. Due to the battery problems, we've switched oh. mics, so I hope this will work. No, Not that's it. all right. I've got, I've got your mic now. All right. We want to start, as John mentioned, with Hebrews chapter 8. And do I have a volunteer who wants to read? Remember that I left you last week with a part of chapter 8 to ponder? 
Um, now the point, you know, about now the point, okay. So who would like to read? I'm especially focusing in now. That's right. Well, let's just do the whole chapter. Would someone like, yeah, okay. Need the microphone? I think it's behind you. Do we have another low battery? Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tent, which is set up not by man, but by the Lord. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry which is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Okay, hold on just a moment, please. Again, I want you to really notice that idea that the ministry of Jesus, his high priesthood, takes place where? In heaven. In the heavenly what? In the heavenly tabernacle, exactly. And what is the importance of the heavenly tabernacle with regard to Moses? It's the original. He was shown as the pattern for the earthly tabernacle, which is thus what? Adjust a copy, which makes it a type. Okay? A type, a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary... Now, the temple in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus was the second temple. Actually, it was in a sense the third since it had been rebuilt by Herod, which makes it what? A copy of a copy of a copy. Okay? That's how far we were removed from the original. Where did Jesus' ministry take place? In the original. Okay. Now continue, please. For he finds fault with them when he says, The days will come, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like, sorry, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I paid no heed to them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach every one his fellow or every one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he treats the first as obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Thank you. Well read. Very well read. Okay. All right. This is what I was looking for. I want to point out one other key phrase, which is the kind of the hallmark whenever you have a covenant in the Older Testament, this same language is used over and over and over again. What am I talking about? Something where God talks about who they will be for each other. I will be your God and you will be my people. That is the covenant formula. Whenever you see that formula, 
Throughout the Older Testament, you know we are talking about covenant. You know we are talking about the covenant relationship between God and God's people. Now, um, what is a covenant? A contract? Is it just a contract? Okay, what's, we'll get to the differences in a moment. What do contract and covenant have in common? We got, I know we have some lawyers here. What is the essence of a contract in law? Okay, you do something now and you have certain ramifications that are fulfilled. Offer and acceptance. In other words, you usually have how many parties at least? Two, okay. And you have consideration perhaps. You have stipulations. What else? And you said there are ramifications. In other words, what happens if one party breaks the, covenant, the contract? The other is excused or can they also, they can also sue for breach of contract, can they not? Okay, so first of all, it is a binding agreement. This is true of both contracts and covenants. We're saying this is important. This really makes a difference. This creates a new reality. It creates a relationship which is binding. Okay, between two or more parties, it's usually two, with stipulations to observe. So, for example, any contractors here? General contractors? Okay, suppose I hire a general contractor because I need a new roof on my house. What are the stipulations that the general contractor has to abide by? He has to put a new roof on and he has to do it right. has to meet my satisfaction. What are the stipulations I have to agree to? I got to pay him. Okay, In other words, there are stipulations on both sides. There are stipulations on both sides. And therefore, there are penalties for breaches. What happens if he completes the roof and I don't pay him? I'm going to get sued. What happens if I pay him and the roof turns out that he did a bad job? He's going to get sued. Okay. It reminds me of one way I was told you're supposed to read Chinese fortune cookies, that before the fortune cookie you put, in an ideal universe. (laughs) So yeah, in an ideal universe we wanted, but now, what is different between a contract and a covenant? Are there some differences? What? Bound and? Bound to do what they say they're going to do. Right. Ah, it's permanent. Okay, in other words, if you're a contractor and I contract with you to put a new roof on my house, you do it, I'm satisfied, I pay you, what happens now with the contract? It's over. No further relationship is really implied. Okay, it's temporary. What other differences are there? Well, let's look at them. What? Uh huh. In other words, is God waiting for us to pay up? Well, actually, he was, but it's been paid. Okay. First of all, a contract is functional. If I hire you to put a roof on my house, do I care whether or not you go bowling on the weekends? Do I care whether or not you're a hunter? Do I care whether or not you play poker? It is very functional. What am I interested in? How good a roofer are you? On the other hand, a covenant is relational. The relationship is the whole point of it. A contract is temporary, like you said. You do build the roof, I pay you, we're done. A covenant is meant to be permanent. A covenant is meant to be permanent. A contract is partial. Like I said, I'm not interested in your whole life if if I hire you to build a roof. I'm just interested in what you can do for me, which means I'm interested in your life insofar as you do your job when you're on the job. It's like punching a time card at a place of work. 
as long as I'm on the company clock, they have a certain interest in what I do with my time and my energy. Once I punch out at night, bye-bye. On the other hand, a covenant is holistic. What's key here is the idea of shalom, peace, wholeness, completeness. Melchizedek was king of what city? Shalem, which means whole, perfect, complete. Shalom, shlemut, all these words from that root are the end and goal of a covenant. God enters into a covenant with Israel, not because somehow God is missing something, but God wants Israel to be whole and complete. All right? A contract is conditional. The language of contracts have a lot to do with if then. Okay. If you complete the work on time and to my satisfaction, then I'm obligated to pay you the rest of the payments. Okay? On the other hand, the relationship and the commitment in a covenant is unconditional. God does not say, I will be your God if you will be my people, but I will be your God and you will be my people. Okay? So it is an unconditional commitment on both parties. A contract is a secular agreement. How do you, re- how do you enter into a contract? What do you do? Get lawyers. No. You don't necessarily need a lawyer to get into a contract. What do you need to do, though? You sign it. It's a signature, okay? Usually, your signature on the document is quite sufficient. Sometimes you need to get it notarized. But basically, it's a secular thing. Also, if there's a breach of contract, where do you get the enforcement? In a secular court of law. On the other hand, a covenant is a sacred agreement. How do you enter into a covenant? Anybody? By faith. By faith, certainly, but there are certain types of ceremonies. In a contract, you have the signing of the contract. How did Moses create the covenant with Israel? What? No, that's with Abraham. There was a sacrifice. Okay, Huge sacrifice. And then what does Moses do with the blood of the sacrifice? He sprinkles it on the people. He sprinkles it on the book. Okay? That's how a sacred covenant is created, by sacrifice or by oath. How was the covenant with David for the priesthood of Melchizedek done in Psalm 110? The Lord has sworn and will not take back. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Also, how does God enforce a covenant? We'll get to that in a little more detail. You have blessings and curses. And when God blesses and God curses, they stick. A contract is bilateral. You have to have mutual consent to enter into a contract. If I hire a band to play for a family, you know, a big family gathering or something because we want to have entertainment. I can't do that without their consent. And they can't come and play unless I invite them. So it's a bilateral agreement. Covenants are unilateral. God really didn't give Israel a choice, did he? He took them by the hand. He led them out of slavery He delivered them at the Sea of Reeds. He brought them to Mount Sinai. And according to one Jewish legend, he held the mountain over their heads and said, how would you like to enter into a covenant with me? (laughs) Now, there are several covenants that are important, and it's important to keep these pretty clearly distinguished. They're all related, but at the same time, they're a little different. We've already mentioned other covenants, but this is actually the first one that's described as a covenant in the Torah. The covenant with Noah. What was the covenant that God entered into with Noah? Anybody? There will be no more floods. Right. And what was the sign? The rainbow. I have set my bow in the clouds, and when I see it, I will remember my promise, and there will not be a flood. Because after all, God said, that's not the solution for this human crew. The Abrahamic covenant, which you find in Genesis 15 and 17, 
two different chapters, two different phases of the covenant. What is, uh, how many people have looked at Genesis 15? It was right after the section where he looked at uh, Abraham and Melchizedek. That's the covenant between the pieces. When God tells Abraham, take these animals, cut them in half, and then as Abraham had a vision in the night, a smoking fire pot and a torch passed between the pieces of the covenant. That represented, as it were, God binding God's self to the covenant. Because that's how there's a phrase, cut a covenant, which literally meant you cut an animal in two, the parties to the covenant walk between them as a way of saying, may the same thing happen to me if I break this. Okay? In Genesis 17, that's where you get the sign of the covenant with Abraham. What was the sign of the covenant? Circumcision, yes. Circumcision as the sign of the covenant. Then the Mosaic covenant. And we're going to go a little bit into detail on this because this is the covenant that Jeremiah's new covenant is in contrast with. Okay, it's in Exodus 19 through 24. And the Davidic covenant, this is also important. God enters into a covenant with David. What was God's promise to David? A son of your body, I will set upon your throne who will reign forever. Okay, very important for us because our understanding is that Jesus is the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant. That's what we mean by the term Messiah. And then finally, the new covenant. Let's look at the Mosaic covenant. There's been a lot of stuff written in journals about the form of that covenant And there was a lot of archaeology that pointed out that this was a fairly common form of agreement between overlords and vassals called a suzerainty treaty. A suzerainty treaty. Okay? And this was something when a suzerain, you know, had basically, you know, taken a vassal, there were certain conditions imposed. The preamble always identified the parties, especially the suzerain. Where in the Mosaic Covenant are the parties identified? You probably have said it many, many times when you recited the Decalogue. I am the Lord your God. Okay. The historical prologue, what the suzerain has done for the vassals. Where do you find that in the Decalogue? Who brought you out of the house out of out, out, out of the house of bondage? Who brought you out of slavery in Egypt, out of the house of bondage? In other words, that's why you're going to enter into this covenant because of what I've done for you. Prohibition against a treaty with any other suzerain. Where do you find that in the Decalogue? You shall have no other gods before me. You're not going to be the vassal of any other power in the universe. Stipulations for the good of the vassals. That's all the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots. Sort of reminds me of the old joke we heard. Moses came down from the mountain and said, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. They say, well, what's the good news? The good news is I got him talked down to ten. <laughs> what's the bad news? The adultery thing stays. <laughs> but the idea is the commandments are there for the good of the vassal, okay? You want to live an authentic human life? This is how you do it. You want to live a good human life? This is how you do it. And then there are the blessings and the curses. Now, you find these mostly elsewhere in the Torah, but you find them hinted at in the Decalogue. Why do you honor your father and your mother? Bang, there's the blessing. Where do you find a curse? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Because why? That's right. I will not hold guiltless the one who takes my name in vain. Okay. Now, the new covenant. Here we go. This is what I want us to focus on. So we've looked at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. You know, I tell people um, there are very few passages where I can quote you with the exact scripture and verse, but that is one. Let me tell you, I have lived with that passage so much in my whole Christian life. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, I will probably, if if I ever succumb to dementia, 
that will probably be the last thing that I will remember is Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. We have looked at that. Now, I'm not, we're not going to read it again. John has already read it for you. Now think back in the Mosaic Covenant. What I want you to, add, what I want you to do is look at that Jeremiah passage and ask, what's new? Well, it's a new covenant, but what in the new covenant is new? First of all, what is the content of the covenant? What is not changed? God, what? Okay, that's all the same. What else is the same? What did God give Israel in the covenant at Sinai? Laws. Okay, there are going to be laws. Are they different laws? Pretty much the same laws. Okay, what is different, however, how are the laws, how were the laws given in the Old Covenant at Sinai? On tablets of stone, okay. It was physical. It was, what was the people's relationship to the commandments? They had to obey, and the word obey comes from the Latin obediare, which means to listen, to heed. In other words, it depended upon people's hearing and responding to something outside themselves. Okay? The law was external to them. And by the way, what was the people's reaction to hearing the voice of God? Terror, absolute terror. In fact, they said, tell you what, Moses, you go, you talk to God, you tell God what God said, because if we hear this voice even one more time, we'll die. They were terrified. They didn't want to hear it. Now, under the new covenant, how are the laws administered? written in their hearts. In other words, instead of writing with the finger of God on tablets of stone, where's the finger of God going to inscribe these laws? In our hearts. Now, how does that happen? Here's where we get a few very interesting passages. I'd like you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 11, 17 through 21. Okay, would someone like to read Ezekiel eleven seventeen through 21? Okay, wait for the microphone, please. Oh, okay. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all of its abominations. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God." But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will requite their deeds upon their own heads, saith the Lord God. Okay. So how is God going to do this? What is God going to do? There are two things that God promises that God is going to do to make obedience possible. A heart transplant. Exactly. We get a new heart. I will take the stony heart out of their bodies. I will put a heart of flesh in there. What's the other thing that God's going to give? His spirit, thank you. Thank you. I will put my spirit within them. And notice that in this passage in Ezekiel, he says, I will give them one spirit. One spirit. Who is that one spirit? The Holy Spirit, exactly. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit that makes it possible. Now turn to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, verse 
verses 22 to 32. Who would like to read this? No volunteers? Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. You shall dwell in the land which I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness, and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominable deeds. It is not for your sake that I will act, says the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Okay, reinforce what John said. Is it because of any great thing about Israel that God will act? What is the primary attribute of God that God seeks to vindicate in giving this new covenant with Israel? His holiness. Oh boy, there's a concept you don't hear too much today unless you listen to Ligonier Radio. Okay, holiness. One thing I like to point out to people, if you look throughout Tanakh, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, when something is emphasized, they will repeat it. Dying you shall die. You know, that's, that's a real severe sentence, you know. There's only one attribute of God that is ever repeated in a threefold manner. And that's if you look at Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, according to the Hebrew scriptures, what is the preeminent attribute of God? It's God's holiness. That's what creates the problem with human sin, is that God is holy and I'm not. Oi. That's a real oi. But again, a new heart and God's spirit. So that brings us back to our whole thing with Hebrews, that that is what he's saying, this is the new covenant that is being given in and through Christ. And how does Christ inaugurate the new covenant? What? How does Christ inaugurate the new covenant? Bingo, through his sacrificial death and resurrection. Okay, this is as far as we're going to get today. What I want you to do, I'm going to give you another passage that I want you to live with over the week to come. It's a little later in Hebrews. I'm running out of space here. But it's in Hebrews 10. Oh. And verses 11 through 25. Just listen to this for a moment. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down 
at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Yeah? Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like all of the covenants... Up until Christ, I have been with a people. Now it's individual, each each of us individually. Is that correct or not correct? Um, it's not just with individuals because notice what does he tell people not to do? He tells them, do not avoid gathering together. Why? This is one of the things that we need to remember. We are not just individuals. We are now the people of God. We are the new Israel. Okay? God has created a new nation, as it were, on the face of the earth. Yes? But we, we have to confess Christ as our Savior before we get into that covenant That's like right. here today. Right? That's right. How did you get into the, you know, if you were an Israelite, how did you get into the covenant? Circumcision. Could you do that as a collective thing? Okay. Vicariously. Yeah, women get in vicariously. That's, 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 that's a story for another day. Okay. Yeah, it's an individual act, but it is an act that puts you into community. The same way with individual conversion to Christ, it is an individual event, but it puts you into a new corporate body. All right. Well, I hope you have a yada, yada, yada Sunday, and God bless you as you go to church. See you next time. Good. <laughs>